Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, I get the amazing opportunity to chat with the great, and Lord knows I mean great, Dr. Martha S. Jones, the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University, and the author of Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, won the vote, and insisted on equality for all. Published in 2020 by our friends at Basic Books. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jones. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. I couldn't think of a better person to talk about uh, Black women's politics with. And uh, you have this kind of great book that um, I'm super excited to to talk to you about. And so, you know, Vanguard is taking the world by storm, literally. Uh, and so can you talk to the listening audience about really at what point did you decide that you would write Vanguard? Um, please tell us about that moment or those moments. A few summers ago, a friend of mine sent me uh, a news clipping, sent it on email, of course, and uh, thought I would be interested. He was right. It was an article um, that described what was planned to be a new monument in New York City's Central Park, one that would be unveiled in August of 2020 to mark 100 years of the 19th Amendment. And uh, the monument included two figures, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, um, two women, white middle-class women, long associated with the history of women's rights and women's suffrage. And my friend knew I'd be interested and more than interested that I'd be unsettled um, because here we were heading toward a centennial year um, that would be filled with monuments, celebrations, lectures, laser light shows, and more. And when I saw the plan for that monument, I thought, oh my goodness, um, is it possible that Black women might be eclipsed, might be forgotten, might be left out of this occasion. Um, and so I kind of waded into the controversy that um, emerged uh, around this monument. Um, a lot of people did. There was a lot of room for public commentary. And before the moment was done, the monument was uh, reconfigured to include the figure of Sojourner Truth, um, a, a third great woman New Yorker, a peer to Stanton and Anthony, an advocate, as we all know, of women's rights in her lifetime. Um, so that was not, uh, that was satisfying, I suppose, but I'm not really a person who's in the business of designing monuments. Um, when I want, when I have something to say, I write an article or I write a book or maybe I write an op-ed from time to time. So um, that was the moment where I realized it was time to um, give full throat to the impetus behind my criticism of the monument, um, that it was really time for me to try and uh, tell what turned out to be 200 years of Black women's political history um, to ensure that we all had the tools we needed going into the 2020 anniversary year to um, make sure Black women would be well remembered and well appreciated. Amen to that. And and you surely did. And, you know, you, your previous books, you know, Birthright Citizens, where, you know, a couple a uh, couple years ago, we discussed that one and also all bound up together. You've really solidified yourself as the, you know, the intellectual force uh, on the histories of uh, the on the political and intellectual histories of black women. Obviously, you know, you're 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 edited uh, volume work as well. And so you're also one of the most prolific public writers in, in the U.S. Academy 
as well and, and really throughout the nation. So can you discuss your writing process for uh, Vanguard and about anything that might have been any different uh, versus writing Birthright Citizens or All mm. Bound Up Together? Mm-hmm. The first very important thing to say is that uh, writing Vanguard was only possible because I was able to draw upon the work and, as we say, stand upon the shoulders of three generations of Black women's historians who have been doing this work importantly, excellently, and for a very long time. Um, No one, or at least I, could not imagine sitting down from scratch and trying to write 200 years of history. You're right, I had some experience and, you know, some work under my belt in this field, um, but it was really a an honor to um, pull upon um, and to synthesize the work of so many historians who have come before me. And of course, when you're writing a book, um, there are folks who are coming up right alongside you and are just out in front of you. And so um, our work is always iterative um, in that way. And it was the first time I had tried to, you know, not only represent my own experience and my own insights from the archives, um, but to represent the insights that came from the work of others. So that's one difference between Vanguard and other books I had written. The second difference was that Vanguard is a book that is as much about the 20th century as it is the 19th. And if you know anything about my work, I'm really a 19th century historian at my core. I'm an early American historian. And um, I really wanted to end the book in 1920 because I was intimidated by the prospect mm. of moving fully into the 20th century. My editor said, absolutely not. Um, he was, I think, correct. Uh, but it meant that um, I was in what was for me uncharted waters. And I figured out pretty quickly what is so um compelling about writing in the 20th century because the archives really change. Um, they are more extensive. Um, they are um more generally preserved. Um, they are supplemented by, you know, public collections and uh, journalistic uh, production like newspapers and magazines. Um, there's just no shortage of archive in the 20th century. Um, and the last thing um, about that, however, is that many of the women I write about who were 20th century figures, they knew we would be coming. They knew they were figures who would be written about by historians in the years to come. So in some ways, though the archives were voluminous, um, these were some of the most elusive figures because um, they tried to, in a sense, um, how can I, they tried to um, uh, organize and structure the archives such that we would tell the stories they wanted us to tell. Um, And the biggest challenge was, you know, finding my own independent insight in the face of the strong hand of Mary Church Terrell or Ida B. Wells. Um, you mm-hmm. know, these are women who understood that folks like me would be coming behind them. Indeed. And one of the parts I loved the most was, you know, as a as someone who's knee deep in the exam process, um, you know, reading great narrative history is is incredible. Um, and, and it's, you know, really like the light, <laughs> you know, that, that is just so beautiful to see like, oh my gosh, this is, this is what I aspire for, right? That this is the, the beautiful narrative flourishes, uh, of, of your, of your pen are just incredible. Um, and it also pushes me to think about, uh, censoring the self in the work too, which is, you know, so anti-historian or mm-hmm. some historians will say, mm-hmm. um, so can you discuss, how writing Vanguard has changed you? You know, um, I was, I was um, well on my way to finishing this book when I realized that um, I, I knew too little about the women in my own family, um, that I really hadn't managed um, to gather up the, their stories of uh, voting rights, including the 19th Amendment, but a great deal more. Um, and I work in an office where their portraits hang on the wall. Um, Some days they inspire me. Some days they intimidate me. Um, Some days they just (laughs) tell me to get back to work. Um, But uh, more to the point, um, I realized, you know, there was an open uh, question about where they had been in these years. So I took a kind of detour and, um, and then decided to write about it. 
um, that I hoped that sharing my own story would, in a sense, encourage other people, you know, to ask the elders in their uh, circle, in their community, in their family, um, the same questions, you know, where were you? What happened? What was it like? Because um, all of those stories are stories, um, if you will, worthy of um, historical documentation and historical reflection. And I think too often we think that only um, the greats, even in African-American women's history, we can be misled to think only the greats or the luminaries should be the subject of history. Um, but I thought, at least for a short part in this book, even figures like my own grandmother or great-grandmother um, were women who um, deserved a place in the historical annals. Um, and so I hope I inspired a few other people to, you know, take out their pens or turn on their uh, voice recorders on their phones and record the elders um, that are still with us. Amen to that, especially in a year like this where, you know, there's just so much uh, turnover in, in family life, right? I'm interested mm-hmm. to see what the um, what historians will be writing about, you know, 40, 50, 100 years from now about the moment that we're living in today uh, for, for a myriad of reasons, you know, could talk about COVID, but also about uh, a topic that we'll be getting to later, and that's uh, the new VP elect. Mm. Um, and so another question that I, I thought about, too, was, um, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're an advisor, you know, you're, you're a mentor to many. Um, I'd like to say that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm under the wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the things that one of, that we just love to engage with are the question of challenges and how we overcome them, especially mm-hmm. in the writing process. Mm-hmm. So can you describe for the audience, what were some of the most notable challenges you faced while writing uh, Vanguard? The most notable challenge is that I committed to writing it in, in less than two years. Um, and so, um, the pressure was built in to the project from the beginning, which is I was going to have to write at a pace, research at a pace, analyze at a pace that I had never really, um, taken up before, probably not since my dissertation, frankly, had I written something in such a short time. So what I wound up doing, um, was writing it while I taught it, um, writing it while my students read the drafts. And so my students uh, at Johns Hopkins worked in a seminar with me um, for a year where um, I produced chapters. Um, They read secondary material. They engaged with primary material. And then they were my first critics. Um, And that was an excellent gauge for um, the kind of audience I hope to reach with Vanguard, which was not necessarily a specialist audience, um, not an audience that necessarily had an extensive background in um, in the material, um, but a thoughtful, engaged, you know, interested audience um, with some curiosity. And so um, all credit to my students um, who uh, drove me to stay up late at night and make sure I had another chapter to put on the table for them when the week arrived. Um, <laughs> but the result, I think, is a much better book because I was really able to see the material um, from the beginning through their eyes um, and to be sure that I was presenting it in a way um, that made it rich and interesting, engaging, um, and accessible um, to a general reader. Exactly. And, you know, the the question of being able to bridge the gap between the academy and um, public, right, and, and the various publics uh, as well, I think is one of your greatest strengths as a, as a writer. And, uh, it's why, uh, now that I've finished the book, uh, my mother is, uh, chomping mm. at the bit to go mm. read it too. Um, just after she finishes, uh, the warmth of other sons, which I got mm. her for her birthday, Wonderful. uh, on, uh, on Sunday. So, uh, happy birthday again to you, mama. Um, happy birthday, and- mom. <laughs> hey, hey, there we go. Another, another one, mom. And also she, she, she's from New York too. She's from Brooklyn. And so, you know, another New Yorker in, in the fray yeah. as well. Um, and so, uh, in, in another connection that I saw that was interesting too. And, um, you know, when we first, uh, met at least in person, that was, uh, I believe, uh, in 2018 at the, um, at Asala mm-hmm. in Indianapolis. 
And uh, at the time I was working with uh, the University of Delaware uh, with the Color Conventions Project. And so, yeah. you know, I'm always keenly looking for, you know, the, the Color Conventions movement in any kind of work. And so mm. um, this is definitely in that light. So hello, uh, Dr. Foreman and the rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so on page 68, you emphatically stated that the heart of Black politics during the antebellum era was the Colored Conventions movement. What was the Colored Conventions movement? And in what way or ways did Black women make their mark in the movement? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, uh, my respect to uh, Professor Gabrielle Foreman, the Colored Conventions Project, everybody associated with that tremendous undertaking, um, which has uh, taken on the extraordinary work of not only making the minutes of these conventions available, discovering new minutes that we didn't even know had survived, um, and then doing the very important work of interpreting them. Um, This is the kind of project that couldn't be done without access to that material that comes from the Colored Conventions uh, project. So thank you. Um, This is a Uh, political movement um, that begins in the early 1830s uh, at a time when African Americans are largely excluded from party politics, excluded from uh, state legislatures and Congress. Uh, African Americans continue to need a space, um, a vehicle, um, a, a, a frame for their deliberations about politics. Um, And so there is a great deal of substance to be worked out by coming together in conventions, sometimes locally, sometimes at the state or regional level, and and even nationally, um, importantly, especially I think after the 1850s. Um, So it is a place for working out Black politics. It is a place in which African-Americans perform their capacity for political deliberation and leadership um, in a world that would deny that capacity. Um, And it is a place in which um, Black politics um, intersect in real time with women's politics. And so my interest in those conventions has been many over the years, but one of my very first and my enduring interests um, are in the ways in which over time we see Black women um, come out of the shadows of those conventions, um, move beyond the, um, if you will, serving of meals and attending to the needs of delegates to wanting to be delegates themselves. Um, And so that's part of the story um, that I'm able to capture in Vanguard um, are the ways in which um, multi-generational partnerships of women um, come to these conventions, learn how they work, um, share their intelligence with one another, um, and then keep one another company as they try to take seats as delegates, as they try to take the podium and speak politics to this predominantly uh, men's audience. Um, And uh, I'm not giving anything away when I say um, this is not a triumphalist story of women um, overcoming either by their wit or their will the resistance to their presence, um, but we know that the conventions are a place in which women's political aspirations are given um, a uh, are allowed to make a an enduring mark. Um, so much so that we can go back and recover them. And it's just so important because for many people they might think that black politics can only be served within the frame of uh of the of the vote right and, and the vote is very important of course but one of the things i love so much about your book is that in detailing this wide birth of history 200 years we get to learn so much more about what politics really are mm. um and and that provides us today with so much understanding about the role of politics now and democracy and, and such as well. And so, um, you know, the color conventions movement um, really played an important role in that too. So um, I'm super excited for people to read that particular area uh, amongst the entire book, of course. Um, and, you know, that area might actually surprise people. And that actually goes to my next question um, as the researcher for this book. And you described how um, really, you know, 
uh, once you get past the early 20th century, it's kind of like, ooh, uh, I don't know what's going on here, um, or as much as you have the grasp of the early period. Um, and so can you describe to our uh, listening audience about anything in your research for Vanguard that surprised you at all, even in the slightest? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, the part of this book that I turned out I knew too little about. And I think it is uh, nobody's fault but my own. It was the the interwar, what we sometimes call the interwar years, the years between um, the First World War and the Second World War, or in my story, the years between the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920 and the uh, enactment of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Um, what happened in those in-between years? Um, and I didn't come into writing this book knowing exactly what that would look like. But it goes to your point about um, black politics because, of course, these are the years of uh, brutal disenfranchisement for so many black Americans, including black women. And what I had to be in tune um, to discover was how do you make politics when you're disenfranchised, right? What does politics look like when you cannot cast a vote? And there are these remarkable women who in some ways wind up being as powerful, if not more powerful in some ways than, than elected lawmakers, a woman like Mary McLeod Bethune, who can't vote in Florida and certainly can't be elected to public office there. Um, but she can come to Washington and help Franklin Roosevelt set up his black cabinet um, and use patronage to bring lots of black folk into Washington and into um, posts of consequence when it comes to meeting out federal resources. So this was a kind of revelation for me um, that even though I thought I was writing a book about the vote, a great deal of, of this book is not about the vote at all because um, I had to attend to the ways in which black women did politics and black women did politics in many ways, um, despite the fact that they were um, so long disenfranchised. And and I think that's so important because, um, you know, like my dissertation project, you know, it really engages the question of uh, Black women's politics in the 18th century, in the long 18th century, as we historians love to extend chronology here. Um, and so, you know, your work really provides me, a, you know, especially a great understanding about, um, you know, the, the ways in which politics can you know, look a lot of different ways, um, mm -hmm. but still, you know, liberation and freedom are at the center of the project, no matter the mm -hmm. time frame. And so, um, you know, and really that makes me think as well, you know, jumping to kind of just looking at you as, you know, the not only the writer of the history, but also a key figure um, who's producing students, right? You're, a, you're an advisor, you're, you know, doing the great work at, at Johns Hopkins. So, really as one of our foremost historians of Black women's political history, what other areas of Black women's political history and thought do you believe grad students and professors should expound upon, especially grounding this in the frame of actually Vanguard, which you can see as a space of open up the book and choose a topic in a way to, mm -hmm. to explore more? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, and, you know, in some ways, part of what Vanguard is a tribute to is how much work we have done, right? Um, but it's true that there are threads that I um, did not pull or, or, or paths I did not take in this work. Um, we know, for example, the, the significance of work, um, some of it now well-established, others of it still emerging around that I will call um, the work around Black internationalism, um, that that is running through this book and I can't go down all of those roads. Um, they would be, they would take me too far afield as I'm trying to push all the way to 1965 and beyond. Um, but mm -hmm. I recognize that there remains a great deal to understand about the ways in which um, black women's politics is um, oftentimes importantly embedded in, connected to, inspired by, and more um, variously um, transatlantic, uh, pan-African, um, and more um, peoples, places, ideas, um, politics, um, geopolitical questions, and more. Um, that part of the story, um, Vanguard um, brushes up against, but doesn't tell it 
um, holy. And um, and some of my students, and I know many others, um, are at work on the kinds of studies that will really permit us to tell a very different story um, going forward. Um, one of the things I um, I have always loved and always finds its way into my work, but never fully um, are the cross-generational dynamics um, in Black women's politics. And so um, I'm, again, able to gesture at that and to provide some examples. Uh, but I think we still haven't um, fully um, appreciated um, the ways in which um, uh, there is, I think, for the women in Vanguard, a very deliberate um, setting of the stage, you know, tilling of the soil, choose your metaphor. But uh, the women I write about see next generations coming um, and uh, and they try and lay the foundation for that. And I, I think in some ways for me, that was a critical sort of lesson that you can't teach um, enough in part because uh, it's easy uh, it, it, or it's easy. Yeah, it's easy, I think, <laughs> to um, to uh, be impatient with politics, right? And except the women in Vanguard are um, just the right mix of impatient and, and, and profoundly patient, right? They know that the work they are doing is work across generations. It's not work that is going to be resolved in any given election cycle. Um, so I think this um, picture of Black politics, which is not so um uh not so fractured by you know historiographic periodization um and really tries to draw those long connections i think is is really exciting and i think we're um we're ready for that work um and i guess the last thing is um one of the things that i tried to do in vanguard would was really embrace what I take to be one of the ethical uh, tenets of of Black studies and of Black history, um, which is to be unapologetic about writing into the present. Um, that we mm-hmm. are always writing um, deliberately, self consciously, with rigor, you know, and 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 critical thinking and great archives and more. Um, but that is not a simply all right to do that, it is um, important that we understand um, that one facet of our work is that of um, writing the useful history, um, the history that um, helps us do better work in the present. Amen to that. Lord knows I'm always for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely speaking to the present. Um, and so, you know, someone that is near and dear to both of us. Her name is Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar. Mm. Hey, Dr. Dunbar, I know you're listening. Hey, Dr. Um, Dunbar. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, and so my dissertation advisor, mentor, and friend, the aforementioned Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, wrote a prominent blurb for Vanguard. She proclaims that Vanguard represents more than 200 years of Black women's political history, from Jarena Lee to Stacey Abrams, Martha S. Jones reminds her readers that Black women stand as America's original feminists, women who continue to remind America that it must make good on its promises, end, end quote. Dr. Dunbar is also the National Director of the Association of Black Women Historians. Can you describe for the listening audience the importance of ABWH in general, and the importance of ABWH to you and your own work. Yes. Um, for readers who uh, stay tuned long enough to read my acknowledgments, um, they will discover um, my tribute to ABWH. Um, many of the uh, scholars affiliated with ABWH are um, there in the footnotes. Um, their ideas are in the text. Um, so, that is one important um, facet of my uh, debt to ABWH. Um, but it was in the ABWH community that I think my ideas were, sorry, my ideas were sharpened, my ideas were emboldened. Um, 
which is to say that Vanguard is a book that unapologetically uh, places Black women right there in the center of U.S. history um, and tells 200 years of U.S. political history from their vantage points. And I learned that approach to telling history, and I was emboldened um, to ensure that that it was infused on every page of this book by the example of the women of um, ABWH. Um, so, uh, you know, um, Dr. Dunbar is an example of someone then, of course, who is a mentor to me, as have been many of the sister scholars in ABWH. Um, so there are also those moments when you say, I'm not sure I can, or I'm not sure how. Um, and those are the moments when you're very glad to be in a community of um, brilliant, generous, um, and experienced colleagues um, who will help you, you know, get righted and keep moving forward. And I needed that in this book, and I found that very much in the community of um, scholars who are also a part of the organization. Indeed. And, uh, you know, the late great uh, Rosalind, uh, Dr. Mm. Rosalind Turbort Penn, mm-hmm. you know, her her book, you know, was, you know, uh, very much uh, path breaking in its own right. And um, and as a personal aside, um, two years ago, we were all back in um, Los Angeles, where really we should be right now. But, you know, COVID had a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I remember uh it was a ceremony when I believe uh, Dr. Gill was uh, transferring um, in the final day to uh, Dr. Dunbar, the national directorship. And um, I remember um, by accident, of course, not not by my choice, but by accident, um, I was actually standing in front of her. Um, mm-hmm. And she was and I don't exactly know what she said, but I know that she was like, uh, young man, c- c- can you move? I can't see. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and that was my only interaction with her. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, it was, it was one that definitely puts a smile on my face, but, um, but, you know, she, she is a path breaking person who is definitely very much acknowledged in your, in your work and, um, is very foundational. Yeah. Um, I am someone, uh, whose debt to, uh, Dr. Rosalind Turborg Penn is not only, uh, infinite, um, it is old, uh, which is to say, um, by the time I attend graduate school, uh, Dr. Turborg Penn is finishing up the work on her pathbreaking work on the history of African American women and uh, women's rights and voting rights. Uh, I long before I read any of the, you know, so-called classic texts on the history of women's suffrage, I read Dr. Rosalind Turborg Penn. And so when I get to those histories, those histories that so often left Black women nearly out of the discussion altogether, I know better because I've read Dr. Turborg Penn, and she's told me not only uh, where and who the Black women are, she has explained to us how it happened that these histories were written without accounting for um, the lives, the ideas, the work of Black women. Um, so I come into the field of women's history, right, in the know, right? <laughs> I know, mm-hmm. I know, I, I, I know. And that's because Dr. Turborg Penn taught us that. Um, and um, this book um, and, and many books like it, uh, like Vanguard, just would not be possible. They would not exist if she hadn't done what was, of course, not only brilliant work, but painstaking work. Right, the painstaking work of undoing the erasure of Black women in this early history. Um, so um, I can say um, I regret uh, I regret very much um, that she wasn't here to see this book, and um, and I it would be dishonest if I didn't tell you that um, the prospect of her reading it scares me just a little bit because, <laughs> um, because I also know, I mean, uh, she was a wonderfully, um, demanding and rigorous and insightful person. And, 
um, uh, I, I would have been honored even if I was a little intimidated to have had her, um, had her read on the book. Um, but, uh, but it is very much a book indebted to her. Indeed. Indeed. So, you know, God, God rest, you know, God rest mm-hmm. her soul and, um, rest in power to you, Dr. Turborg Penn. Um, and, and actually, it's a great way to actually pivot because I'd be actually very interested to see what her thoughts would be about VP elect uh, Kamala mm-hmm. Harris, mm-hmm. right? Who is now um, on her official now officially on her way to the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, and on an aside, I'm actually glad that our interview ended up being at this time because I'm happy that we know what the prospect is as opposed to the possibility. Um, you know, uh, in in terms of uh, you know, I think our original one was uh, in the early fall, which we wouldn't have known what the result would have been. And so, uh, like I said, I'd be interested to know what her thoughts would be about this moment. Um, and and anyone who's read Vanguard or Will will definitely realize the inevitability of a hundred years post nineteenth mm-hmm. Amendment that uh, VP Kamala Harris would would be where she is we should not just assume that that is just by divine providence, mm-hmm. but by painstaking work. Um, and so in your scholarly and personal opinion, what does VP elect Harris mean within the story tradition you chronicle in Vanguard of black women's politics? Finishing Vanguard was tough because it was the end of 2019 uh, we all knew we were coming into an unprecedented election cycle and that there were many formidable black women who might be right in the mix. Um, my book ends with Stacey Abrams, um, who I think um, certainly qualifies as a figure of extraordinary consequence for 2020, mm-hmm. as we have all seen. Um, but Senator Harris um, snuck up on me. Uh, and, uh, and it's wonderful, right? Because, um, it's a tribute to, um, how black women have become a force in American politics, which is to say you can be a student of the whole thing and not quite see Kamala Harris fully coming, right? In 2020. Um, but I very much appreciate her. Um, you might remember her, uh, acceptance speech at the uh, 2020 Democratic National Convention. She gives us a history lesson, and it's six names mm-hmm. Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Wells, Mary McLeod Bethune, Diane Nash, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Constance Baker Motley. Listeners, if you don't know who those women are, it's time to learn because this is the political history out of which Senator, now Vice President elect um, Harris has emerged. Um, So um, she is an important figure in her own right. And at the same time, I would say that to leave her distinction as something like she's the first of this or the first of that really doesn't do the moment justice because we should never forget that then Senator Harris was one of six black women on Joe Biden's shortlist Mm-hmm. And he decided on a running mate for the 2020 contest. Um, she ran alongside 130 black women who were vying for seats in Congress in 2020. Not to mention the 90 plus percent of black women in so many places who made the difference. Hello, Georgia. Hello, Pennsylvania. Um Black women are a force in American politics today, and Kamala Harris is um, the most visible evidence of that. Um, but to stop at Vice President-elect Harris and not appreciate the ways in which Black women are running um, American politics in front of the camera, behind the camera, um, in the party, at the polls, and more, um, if we miss that, um, we are really missing, I think, what the real story of 2020 is. Indeed. Indeed. And really, now VP Harris, she's one of the most interesting, I would say, political figures, really, of this moment for, you could say, a myriad of reasons, right? Obviously, because for her background 
And so it would have just been interesting to see narratively how you would have fit her into the story. Mm-hmm. How would you have fit her, you think, into the story narratively? I guess just, you know, uh, just riffing, I guess, you know, as, as we as we often do. <sighs> Well, you know, I'm not sure what you're asking me, Adam. I, I, I feel like there's a layer to your question that you're not. Am I am I wrong that there's no, 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 something no. underneath that or just no, there, there might be paranoid? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just one of those where, you know, like you said, when you originally um, or at least it sounds when you originally finished um, the, the book, obviously, you know, this is very much pre um, pre uh, election. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I'm just interested in knowing, I guess, being presentist, right? As we, you know, historians love to be. Um, I, I, and, and like I said, you don't necessarily even have to have an answer, but it's just me thinking out loud about what the final couple have pages would have been. Mm-hmm. Kind of like just kind of thinking about from Stacey Abrams to her, to, yeah. to, to, what that would have looked like, I guess, yeah. is a more fleshed out um, uh, question or, or thought, rather. Yes, thank you. I, 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 and I don't mean to be funny with you. You you have a you have a future um, as a um, editor of a book series because um, you're. This is the conversation we're having right now about um, the paperback edition of Vanguard and the possibility that there would be a um, a new. Uh, a new end to the book that would talk about this. Um, you know, on the one hand, I think you'd have to talk about California. You'd have to tell a story about geography. Um, and in Vanguard, um, I uh, recount briefly the moment in 1972 when uh, Shirley Chisholm runs for the Democratic nomination. The first black woman to sit in Congress um, now in 1972 is going to run for the, for the Dems nomination for president. Um, and some of the most um, remarkable moments of that campaign um, unfold in California. And um, one of the um, stories I, I love out of that moment is that um, this is where today uh, Representative Barbara Lee, um, Congresswoman Barbara Lee from California, um, becomes political. She volunteers for Shirley Chisholm. And, um, and the rest, as we say, is history. Um, so I think that there is a story um, still to be fully fleshed out from my vantage point um, about Black women and politics in California. You probably know that the very first Black woman to run for uh, the vice president's office in this country um, was not Kamala Harris. It was Charlotta Bass, um, who ran in 1952 on the Progressive Party ticket, and she too was from California. You see the way I'm connecting the dots here? Um, and I think that um, the West and California in particular, um, you know, can sometimes get short shrift in African-American history, right, and be overlooked in African-American political history. But I think Senator Harris gives us a chance um, to drill into the question of California um, and how it is and why it is that um, so much that is remarkable about Black politics, but about Black women's politics has in part its origins in the state of California. So there's a riff for you on where we might go um, in thinking about that. But it is to say that, you know, when you look at the six women um, whom Vice President, then Vice President Biden um was considering, you know, they're not cookie cutter women, right? They're not all from Chicago or New York or Atlanta or any place, right? They're, 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 they're from many de- geographies, professional trajectories, family histories, and more. Um, and that's why I say Black women have become a force because um, we are no longer, uh, you know, could we never should have been, but we certainly now cannot be mistaken for for tokens or symbols, right? These are flesh and blood, complicated women um, who we all had to really get to know, right? And to vet in order to figure out who we thought should be the VP candidate. And we didn't all agree. Um, And I think that's a tribute to the force of Black women in politics. 
Amen. And uh, yeah, definitely look forward to that uh, book review or not a uh, book review, but a uh, book editor uh, life, <laughs> uh, a post dissertation um, and post book, maybe even the second, who knows? <laughs> and so, um, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, we had mentioned earlier is just, you know, about uh, placing the self within the work. Mm-hmm. And so for, for you, Dr. Uh, tell us, tell us, tell us, tell us, what does it mean for you to write about the lives ambitions, triumphs, struggles, pain, and really the importance of Black women and Black women's politics. What does that mean for you to do this work? On one level, as I've suggested, it is a way to do honor, justice of a sort to um, my ancestors and to many of ours. Um, making sure that their lives and their work are part of the record. Um, But I aim to rewrite U.S. history. And in this story, I think Black women are the center. This is why the book is called Vanguard. And so I'm partly here to change the narrative, um, to make it impossible or at least very uncomfortable for anyone ever again to narrate U.S. women's political history, the history of voting rights, the history of the women's suffrage movement, and overlook black women. I'm here to say you do that, and um, and you will get your own very personalized copy of Vanguard um, by uh, express mail, um, because you should know better. Um, so I'm here to change the narrative um, and to um, promote the view, I think the correct view. That when it comes to this story, black women are um, the best of the leadership that women in this country have ever known. Um, They embodied for 200 years, too many of them unrequited, (laughs) underappreciated. Black women have held up, they are the founders of some of this country's um, most uh, venerable values in the 21st century. Black women are the first anti-racist feminists um, who insist that American politics should be um, a rough and tumble field, but one that does not countenance racism or sexism. It is only black women who say that for most of our history. And maybe in the 21st century, more of us have caught up. Um, But the women I write about are the originators of that idea and they are the standard bearers of that idea for a very long time. And um, I'm somebody here to make sure they get credit for it. And you surely do. And and, and thank you for such um, uh, uh, j- j- just so, so much thoughts, so, so many thoughts circulating. Um, and, and this, you, your answer really makes me also want to go one level deeper and just, just ask, really, do you feel called to this work? Hmm. You know, historians like to tell stories of, you know, the the slightly unexplained things that happen to us that when we write um, and when we work on project. But this is a project in which um, I was very sure, right, that the ancestors were sitting on my shoulder, um, that they were making sure I found the the connections and the insights, the archives, and more. Um, I, I very much, um, felt that, um, I wasn't alone in this work and I certainly was not alone in the worldly sense because I have wonderful friends and colleagues. Um, but I felt I was on a long journey, um, not alone on that journey, um, but on a long, uh, on, on a journey, um, that, um, in some ways, other people had planned for me, and I was just catching up to the work I was supposed to do. Um, and uh, and that's um, that's a gift, that's an honor, that's a privilege um, to find yourself doing work that you feel um, called to do, um, and the work that um, you know the ancestors would have you do. Indeed, and to. Speaking about, you know, also just also the landscape at which you do your work in, here's a fun question, or at least I think it's fun. I'll, I'll say that. 
if you had all the money you need in the entire world to build your custom own writing, reading, and thinking space, what would it look like? Paint the picture for the people, Dr. Jones. And this question comes from, as you deliberate in your mind, as I give you a little extra few seconds, this comes because I follow you on social media and I'll be seeing you Baltimore and, you know, France. I'm like, man, she probably looking at some beautiful views wherever she is. And so that's in part where this question is inspired. I'm just, I'm just curious about if you could curate your own space, right? Money ain't an issue. What would it look like? What would it smell like? What would it sound like? I love that. You know, so one of the things I'll tell you is that because like so many people, I've been um, at home and working at home and isolated uh, during the COVID times. Um, uh, During the COVID months, I uh, replaced the folding table that had been my desk for years with an actual desk. (laughs) That that felt like a lot to me. I I think if I'm actually going to spend like 24 seven in in this place, I'm going to, I'm going to just treat myself to a real desk rather than the folding table, which was a pretty good folding table, but there it is. So in mm-hmm. some ways, my um, my dreams are, are, are maybe more modest than some people's. Um, but I will say that my dream, and I hope my brother's listening because I talk to him about this all the time. Um, my my real dream is, is, is that office with a water view. Um, nice. It looks out over um, the Peconic Bay of Long Island, um, and it permits me to um, see the sunrise and the sunset um, and the seasons change. Um, and, uh, um, and I don't care too much what it looks like in the sense that um, I'm mostly going to be looking out the window. Um, but I know it's a room filled with books, um, with um, souvenirs, um, with uh, cards and notes, um, with family pictures, um, all the things that inspire me. Um, so that when I do look around the room, I have a bookshelf in my office at home that is my inspiration shelf and it's books, uh, mostly written by friends, sometimes written by people I admire from afar. Um, but when I'm, when I'm running low on inspiration, um, I look at those books. I see Dr. Dunbar's Never Caught sitting on that shelf as I look over right now. Um, mm-hmm. that, that is um, the kind of um, place that um, I work and I work well. But at least up until now, I don't have that water view. So, so <laughs> I have to just imagine it in my mind. Wow. That's beautiful. I, you know, you are the second person I've asked this kind of question to. The other person mm. was uh, JT Roan. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just, and if you know anything about him, you know, he's I very do. much, you know, environmental and yeah. very much, you know, uh, rural and agrarian and to a certain degree. And is the, his, you know, I, I'll send you that interview too so you can hear what his answer was too, um, because it, it's just um, captivating because, you know, the sights, the sounds, what does it smell like? What are you looking at? Um, and I think that those kinds of um, those kinds of questions really help us to animate kind of like in this, you know, in the COVID months that have been most of 2020, a lot of us have had to recalibrate. I was never an inside worker. I was always mm-hmm. coffee shop or yes. somewhere outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that's just not tenable at this point. And so I had to re-adjust um, my whole orientation to work. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I love this question because it helps us to uh, imagine what will what will be later. Um, we, we hope in terms of turning our spaces into places that we truly love. Um, and, and so um, and, and this will be the final one. I think another fun one for you. Mm-hmm. If you could resurrect five historical figures from Vanguard and or from history in general, right, in African-American history in general, for a five-course, all-expenses-paid dinner mm. and desserts, and could ask them any question you want. Who is at the dinner table, and what are some of the questions you would ask those at the dinner table? I, this is hard, because five is too few, but let me try, because <laughs> it, it's it's remarkable. The name. So, uh, Mariah Stewart, right? Mm-hmm. First American woman to speak to 
promiscuous audience about politics, um, driven off the public stage. I Shout out to know. Marilyn Richardson. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Marilyn Richardson, who gifts, gifts us Mariah Stewart. Um, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. I am a Harperian, mm. as Brittany Cooper once told me. I really am someone whose own political philosophy um, tracks very close to Watkins Harper. I couldn't miss the opportunity um, to sit down with her. Um, you know, I, I'd love to see Mary Church Terrell in action. I'm not sure I'd get much, you know, a word in edgewise, or that, mm. I, or that I wouldn't be too intimidated. But um, I'd love to see. Um, Terrell's um, personal style. Um, absolutely Mary McLeod Bethune, um, one of the most, um, I think, important, um, intriguing, um, and in some ways mysterious figures of the, um, of the 20th century. And I've got one more. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, uh, it's, it's uh, Francis Harriet Williams who um, is in this book and is not a well-known figure. She happened to have been my grandmother's sister. Um, and um, while I knew her in my lifetime, I was too young and, and too naive to ask her the right questions. And so um, I think I'd have to want to sit down with her and finally ask her all the things I should have asked her when I had the chance. I think mm. that's five. And I think they'd find each other fascinating. Yes, I, I I love that. I would just love to just think about not only the question that you would ask them, but the question they would ask themselves, mm-hmm. right? Literally asking them, "So what happened? So yeah. what happened? So what happened?" Um, because I I love the chronology too. Because Stewart dies, I believe, in what the eighteen late eighteen seventies, um, and then so just thinking about at the death of each one, there's almost the the beginning of another. Um, And so just thinking about kind of like passing the baton on of the tradition. And so I I think like that is a beautiful melding of, of, uh, of different personalities and, and yeah, and and throw in uh, Ida B. Wells in there too. And then it's like, Mm -hmm. oh my goodness, man, goodness. That would, that would be, that would be amazing. Absolutely. Um, And so, uh, well, Dr. Jones, we have come to the end and I just want to tell you, it is incredible, and you know I've I've told you this um, uh, before, but you know uh, my grandmother passed two years ago, mm. and um, right before she passed, um, I wrote a review in uh, Black Perspectives for uh, Birthright Citizens. Yes, and um, one of the things I love the most about Black Perspectives and really open source um, content like uh, Black Perspectives and and others is that for those who would have never had the access like really many of the people that you write about, let's be honest, um, wouldn't have had access to this kind of information. Um, they were. And so my grandmother, my, my uncle read on, on, while she was in the hospital a few months before she passed, she read my review oh my and, goodness. and she, um, she, she was just so elated. Um, and um, as, as one of the people who really believed in me, Mm. Um, I can I, I can always say for the rest of my life and going forward that you are going to have a, sp- a special place in my heart for the simple fact that it's your book, Birthright Citizens, that was, I believe, the last thing that she either read and or was uh, read to her mm. um, that I had done. Um, well, and that's, that's an honor. Wrote. What an honor you uh, you've extended to me and in, in sharing that um, because I and you mentioned your mother earlier and I. I think that one of the um, the highest compliments to me um, with respect to any of my work is when somebody says that they've shared it across generations because mm. um, that's that's the highest compliment, isn't it? You know, when you when, Indeed. You, when you pass something on to someone else you love, um, it it really is the highest compliment. So I thank you for reminding me of that and for honoring me with the memory of your grandmother. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I know you're up there in heaven listening, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Grandma Eva. And so, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, y'all, I hope that y'all really enjoyed this episode where I'm discussing with one of my just, just, just all time favorite 
thinkers, writers, really of all time. And her name is Dr. Martha S. Jones. And she is the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University. And she was on today on New Books in African American Studies to discuss a brand new book published in the year 2020, Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. And thank you to Basic Books for publishing this amazing book and all the content that you do. And so, y'all, if you like this episode, rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe to New Books in African American Studies and the New Books Network as well, wherever you get your podcasts. And so until next time, folks, this is your host, Adam McNeil, signing off. Over and out.